This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Pride Month may be coming to a close, but efforts to highlight members of Staten Island's LGBTQ community, the accomplishments they've made, and the challenges they still face remain ongoing. I had a really in-depth interview with Melinda Spira. I think she gives the best advice for parents. The biggest thing she said is they have to support their children. And as a parent, you have to let go of the perception of what your child's life would be like and embrace their identity and who they have become. And she she has liberal views and things, but she really said it's still a struggle for any parent. And it took her 10 years. Um, you know, the littlest thing from using the right pronoun to accepting her child's lifestyle. And um, I think they are a great example of a mother and child who really have overcome all the challenges and have a and wonderful, wonderful relationship. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Seat, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance Public Interest and Advocacy Editor Tracy Pora to discuss her efforts overseeing our Pride Month coverage and the importance of covering the LGBTQ plus community on Staten Island. Thanks for joining me today, Tracy. You know, I've had you on the podcast plenty of times now, but this is the first time having you on since you became my boss a few weeks ago when I tr- uh, transitioned to your team. So I feel like I might have to choose my words a little bit more carefully now. Um, but but I'm actually really excited uh, to be working with you in my new role for for our listeners who, who may not be aware. Obviously, it's not like we made a big announcement or anything, but I've moved from my work on the community news team doing uh, primarily transportation work over to the public interest and advocacy team with Tracy, where I'll be doing some more political work, some some deep dives on some data, and ho- hopefully eventually some some really cool investigative stuff. So I've been working with you four years, but now to be working for you uh, is probably going to be a little different, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, you're a great addition to the team, and I'm very excited to be working with you now. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so I have you on today to talk about Pride Month on Staten Island, which as we know, is in June, but on Staten Island, and we're going to get to this, it's actually celebrated oftentimes in May. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you've been at the paper for a while on and off. Um, so I was curious when you first remember kind of Pride Month events popping up here on Staten Island. Well, it, the the first uh, Pride Month was declared by Bill Clinton in 1999. But I remember events popping up in the early 2000s is when we started to see a presence and and some events here on Staten Island. You know, that's about over 20 years ago at this point, which is kind of crazy to think about. I think a lot of people hear like 2000 and they're like, oh, that was a couple of years ago. It's <laughs> no longer the case. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, in your time here, how have kind of the celebrations on Staten Island and, and our coverage of them kind of changed throughout those years? Well, we always covered Pride Fest as an annual event that is hosted by the Staten Island Pride Center. But in recent years, we've initiated more advocacy projects around Staten Island's LGBTQ plus community, particularly their exclusion at the St. Patrick's Parade on Staten Island. To our knowledge, it is the only parade left in the world that still 
excludes LGBTQ plus groups from marching under their own banner. Yeah, which, uh, you know, is something that we have documented for years now, and we've even talked about on this podcast. So um, people can go back and, and listen to that. I think we've actually had podcast episodes on it the last two years, um, one of which I believe you joined us for as well. So uh, th- that's something that we've really tried to advocate for at the Staten Island Advance. And you know, it's interesting because you talk about advocacy and the importance of, of that at our paper now. We even changed the name of this team, right? Like this wasn't originally the public interest and advocacy team. I think it was probably the politics team or the whatever it might be. But uh, I think it's interesting that we've kind of gone in a different direction where we're not only trying to cover these things, but choosing things that we think are important here at the paper and obviously covering them from a straight news perspective from the reporters, but then also having opinion pieces and featuring different people that we may have not uh, in the past. So uh, I really want to commend the work that we've done here at the Advance uh, in recent years of trying to push things forward in that direction. But let's talk a little bit about, about this year's celebrations. So, you know, we have the Pride Center of Staten Island, which is the main group that that puts on a lot of these things, not to say that there aren't, of course, other, you know, advocacy organizations or, or LGBTQ plus groups here on Staten Island who are doing things. But the Pride Center is kind of central to to a lot of what goes on here. So can you tell me a little bit just about the Pride Center first and, and you know, what they do not only during Pride Month, but year round? Well, uh One of the things is they organize a lot of events on Staten Island that cater to the LGBTQ plus community, but they also offer a lot um, support groups. They have a network of people where they really offer so many different programs and so many different things for people to get involved, whether you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community or an ally. There are so many opportunities there for you to get involved, sponsor certain events. Have They have a presence at a lot of events that occur on Staten Island. So any types of uh, festivals or, you know, any, any type of public event, there's always a table from the Pride Center. And I think it's a very good resource for especially young people who may be struggling with coming out or struggling with how to talk to their parents or to their peers and it's a really good place uh, where they they have many groups and many uh, resources. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to talk a little bit about what they were doing for Pride Month this year. But, you know, on Staten Island, as I kind of mentioned earlier, Pride Month kind of spans two months, right? Because they seem to hold most of their events uh, during May. And then you have uh, Pride Month being traditionally celebrated during June. So why is it that they kind of split things up like that? Karen Bullock, the president of the Pride Center, uh, told me the reason that the Pride Center of Staten Island holds their events throughout May is so um, people, they can go support the other boroughs in their Pride events. And in, and, and in turn, people from the other boroughs can start Pride Month early and come and celebrate here on Staten Island as well. Yeah, no, and that makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider the fact that um, New York City Pride is one of the biggest in the country, specifically in Manhattan. You know, you have the the large parade, but also just events going on in all the different boroughs uh, all throughout the month. So it would make sense that, you know, they would do that so they can kind of participate in both of them. Um, So I'm curious, what were some of the events that were put on this year on Staten Island? Well, they had a full roster of events that began in early May. Some of them included uh, drag show performances at the Cargo and the Burrito Bar. Um, there was a hike through the Green Belt. There was an outdoor movie performance. There was a night at the Ferryhawk Stadium. They had Pride Night. 
And then at the actual Pride Fest, which is kind of culminates the whole, um, you know, the whole month of Staten Island events at the end of May, was held at the stadium for the first time this year. So uh, I, I know a lot of people really enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely. And so in addition to kind of covering the the different events that were, were planned throughout the, the month in May, we also did a series where we were uh, kind of doing feature stories on, on various members of the LGBTQ plus community here on Staten Island. So I was curious what the thought process was on that, why you think it's so important for us to, to highlight these Staten Islanders and, and kind of what we're hoping that our readers can can gain from that content. Well, this is all part of our uh, effort to highlight diversity and inclusion efforts happening on Staten Island and beyond. Um, I think it's very important to put a spotlight on the borough's LGBTQ plus community because Staten Island often gets a bad rap um, as probably not the most uh, inclusive borough. Possibly, you know, we're seen as a conservative borough, but that's not all of Staten Island. And there are many efforts by the Pride Center as well as the larger LGBTQ plus community here on Staten Island that people need to see and people need to know is here. So, you know, we like to showcase that because we do have a very rich supportive community here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of shifting that narrative in the in a way of the, the way that Staten Island is viewed in some senses is really important. And so can you tell us a little bit about, I know that you were the the driving force behind our Pride coverage this year. You were serving as the editor for, for pretty much all of these stories, right? And you were recruiting people not only from your team, but from other teams to kind of pitch in and help out and, and work on some of these stories. So I was curious uh, if you could tell us a little bit about some of the different residents who were featured this year. Yeah, we, we took a broad range of people. Um, we had done this last year, so we didn't want it. We wanted to uh, have a little bit more of a deeper dive this year. And uh, one of the first the first profile that we ran out uh, by Lauren Lavallo was um, on State Senator Jessica Scarcella Spanton. She's a fierce advocate and ally for the LGBTQ plus community. And she's the only elected official that took part in a very peaceful protest before the St. Patrick's Parade on Staten Island this year. Um, and she's vowed to do everything in her powers to make that parade inclusive. We also profiled Alan Arthur Aurelia and his husband, Jamie. Um, they're both very accomplished musicians here on Staten Island, and they have been married for a long time. When they initially got married, um, Jam Jamie identified as a woman. But Jamie is now transgender and they've stayed together. And we really thought it was a really great true love story. And um, the way Alan said, he said, since the pandemic, he views love in a different way. It's deeper than cosmetics and things like that. And then we had uh, a mother, Melinda Spira, who talked about her 10-year journey of accepting her transgender child. We had Anthony Wilkinson, who wrote My Big Gay Italian Wedding that was on Broadway for many years and is doing an upcoming show in Atlantic City. We had George D. Adams, one of the island's first openly gay assistant district attorneys. We had Casey Hankins, who's a well-known activist in the community. And we had a 21-year-old who is really, um, his name is Gabe, and he was uh, he does a lot of social media, TikToks and YouTubes, and has really cultivated a young LGBTQ plus audience of his followers. We really did, like you said, focus on kind of a wide range of residents and a wide range of stories here. And I, I think they're all obviously so important to tackle. But I think 
particularly, it's nice to see the focus that we've uh, we've kind of put on transgender residents who, you know, historically uh, pride was viewed more as a, a queer thing or, or a, a sexuality thing as opposed to a, a gender construct. And, and some people uh, in the community may have been getting more attention than others on that. And obviously, we know if you look around the country right now, uh, many of the challenges faced by the transgender community, the violence against them, the restrictions to, to care, to gender affirming care. So uh, I, I think that putting that out there was something that was that was really important. And I think that it's great that, that we made kind of a conscious effort this year to feature some of those stories as well. So I just wanted to kind of note that before before moving on. We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey, a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing, I know we're going a little out of order here from what I had originally told you, so bear with me. But you mentioned what this means for parents and, and some of the challenges that they face or and some of the challenges, obviously, that their children face in, in coming out to them or, or not feeling supported or, or whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm curious, in our reporting and some of the discussions that we've had, uh, what did you hear from parents in terms of what the process is like and, and you know, what, what can Staten Islanders kind of take from from that? Well, I think I, ha- I had a really in-depth interview with Melinda Spira. I had previously profiled Nate and um, I interviewed her this year. And she her, I think she gives the ve- best advice for parents. And the biggest thing she said is they have to support their children. And as a parent, you have to let go of the perception of what your child's life would be like and embrace their identity and who they have become. And she she has liberal views and things, but she really said it's still a struggle for any parent. And it took her 10 years, um, you know, the littlest thing from using the right pronoun to accepting her child's lifestyle. And um, I think they are a great example of a mother and child who really have overcome all the challenges and have a and wonderful, wonderful relationship. And she actually also supports other parents. And she asked me at the end of the story to also put her email and other parents could reach out to her because not everybody is as accepting, I think, as as she is. And it may be more difficult for some parents. But she really spoke to us in depth about that journey that a parent takes, which I thought was really important to bring out. Even though you love your child, it's something you have to let go of your preconceived notions of what your kid's life would be like. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, a super complicated situation for, for everyone involved. And I think that it it's so meaningful that she was so honest in that interview and, and kind of sharing that, you know, this was a 10-year journey and it was a struggle and it wasn't immediately like they came out and I realized that, you know, and whatever. And so it, it is definitely a process. And I think that it's something that other people on Staten Island can can really learn from and, and realize that, okay, maybe this is a little confusing to me at first. Maybe I don't necessarily get it right away, especially as we mentioned earlier, we're coming from a borough that is traditionally a little bit more conservative and, and may have uh, varying viewpoints and may have been raised in a way where 
this might be uh, viewed differently than than others might view it. So I, I think that it was just a really, really powerful, really, really beautiful story about just learning with your child and learning to love them as they are, as opposed to as you want them to be or as you thought they would be. And I think that that's something that uh, other parents and, and and other queer children who might be coming out are, are really going to uh, learn from and, and can really take something out of. So I thought that that was just a just a really well done piece. And I, I really I really appreciated that one. So I want to move on to another one that, and this one I believe published a little more recently, and this was a, a story written by Jessica Jones Gorman about the Staten Island queer bar community and how, you know, at a time there was this uh, vibrant community on the North Shore of, of bars that were viewed as safe havens for, for the LGBTQ plus community here on Staten Island, and how those have kind of disappeared. But then in her talking to people, it seemed like that was almost a good thing or or not you, you you will know better you edited this story so you can kind of explain the way that uh people in the community were talking about it well she spoke to some really great sources uh, a friend of mine chris bauer who is one of the pioneers of the lbgtq plus community on staten island i profiled him last year in our series and he, what had been termed gay bars in the 80s was needed because it was a place where you could meet people just like straight people would meet in a bar. And it was also a safe haven where they can feel free to be themselves and not face discrimination. But as there is more inclusion and less homophobia in the world, a lot of people in the uh, community say that it's not needed anymore. I know Carol Bullock spoke to Jessica for that story and she said it's a good thing. But there's another side to it. People don't meet as much in bars as they do. They did in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. So most people meet online and through dating sites. So there's less of a need to have, you know, an, 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 a queer bar where they you, you know who you're talking to. I think it's it's for all different reasons. People don't look at bars as meeting a significant other anymore. So that's kind of why, and it is a good thing that um, the need isn't there. Yeah, and I think another part of it too, and this is uh, mentioned in the story towards the end, I believe too, is that some of the bars, and we reference cargo in the in the story, they know that those places are safe for them. They know that those are supportive, although that may that bar may not be designated as like this is strictly a place where queer people gather. There are places now on throughout the island, really, where they know that they are accepted. They know that they are welcome. They're doing uh, things like partnering with those organizations to have events. You mentioned Burrito Bar. I know Flagship does a lot of work with that. They've worked with the Alice Austin House on on different things. And so I, I think that the community, the Staten Island community, embracing the LGBTQ plus community as a whole has also kind of contributed to that lesser need for, for those designated spaces. Yeah, and there was an event uh, that was held after the parade because of the exclusion of the LGBTQ plus groups uh, at the St. Patrick's Parade a lot of the bars there lose business. Um, and that's usually a very big day on Forest Avenue. And to, as a thank you, the Pride Center all organized the Crawl for All. And all those bars participated. Even though the car was not on Bay Street, that was like the culmination of the crawl um, at night for a drag show. But there, all the bars on Forest Avenue were, well, were very welcoming, especially Jody's, which uh, lost a very large political breakfast that happens every year there up until last year, uh, this past year, 
because of the LBGTQ plus exclusion from the parade. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned the parade and and that kind of leads perfectly into my next topic, which is, you know, the importance of of talking about these types of things, not only during Pride Month, but also covering these types of topics year round. And so obviously the parade is a big one and we've been on that for years now and trying to figure out the funding and who is responsible and who makes these decisions. Is it legal? Is it not legal? And it's not a once a year thing. It's kind of a year round thing that uh, you've kind of been tasked with heading for the past few years. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the year round coverage that we do here at the Advance. Well, we cover events year round, but after the 2020, uh, no, it wasn't. Yes, it was 2020 when several people uh, were not allowed to march at the parade. There were high school bands because they had pride flags. Uh, Joe Borelli, a conservative Republican, was thrown off the route because he had a little pride flag on his lapel. So we were about to do a year-long coverage of that, and then the coronavirus happened. So, And then the parade didn't happen in 2021. So 2022 was the first year we could really ramp up this effort. And we started with the parade that year. We literally walked in with the Pride Center when they filed their application and were denied. And we then covered it the entire year. We uncovered things like how much city funds are used for the overtime for all the city services like the fire department, the police department, the sanitation department that goes into the parade that is exclusionary. And we looked at, we spoke to many people, many politicians put their feet to the fire. And this year, only three politicians marched and Mayor Adams came to the Rainbow Run, which is a run. It's actually, it's actually called the Forest Avenue Mile, but in years past, it's been dubbed the Rainbow Run because they always welcome the Pride Center and the LBGTQ plus groups to run in, you know, in and under their own banners. Um, and that showed a really big support for the Pride Center. And it's important to actually showcase how large our community is here and what support they really do have. And having the district attorney cancel that breakfast with all the politicians, having Jessica Scarcella Spanton, uh, our state senator participate in a peaceful protest, having Mayor Adams walk with the pride flag and march down Forest Avenue before the parade just made a statement. So um, I'm really happy and proud of our coverage. Unfortunately, it didn't do what we wanted it to do. It's still not inclusive, but we're going to keep covering it. So until it is. So we'll see what happens this year. Yeah, absolutely. And so before we wrap up, you've obviously talked to so many different people in the community uh, throughout the years now of, of covering these these LGBTQ plus topics. So I'm curious in your discussions with them, how do they feel about the progress that's been made on Staten Island in recent years and, and what more work is there still to do? There's definitely more work still to be done. Um, I think there's a lot more acceptance in the community. I would beg to say that almost everybody knows a person who is, you know, a gay male, a lesbian, a transgender person, a queer person in their own families. And they might know them whether they know that they are or not. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, I want to showcase that our community is inclusive and is supportive. And there are a lot of resources out there, especially for the young people who might come from a conservative family and might fear coming out to their parents. But 
homophobia still exists, like you talked about, about everything that's going on with lawmakers and just people who are trying to inhibit the rights of the LBGTQ community. And more community activism is needed. You know, um, more people need to become allies, help and support their fellow community members. I think that's what you need to see more of, not like, oh, I'll come out because, you know, this one day I'll go to the Pride March, you know, but it's, or I'll go to the Pride Fest Festival. They need to come out year round and, and really support people, their neighbors, and their community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tracy. It's always great having you on to chat. My pleasure, Eric. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit silive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism. Thank you.